This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is your host, Sam Chandon. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Sam Chandon. The Real Estate Hour airs at noon Eastern every Friday. Immediately after our show at 1 p.m. Eastern, stay tuned to Business Radio for Behind the Markets, hosted by Professor Jeremy Siegel and Head of Research at Wisdom Tree, Jeremy Schwartz. As always, you can access our past shows using the SiriusXM On Demand feature. If you have a question during today's discussion, please do give us a call at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. You can also email your questions to businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Later in today's program, I'll be joined by Professor Stephen Pedigo, Director of the Urban Lab at NYU's Shack Institute and a returning guest to the program. We'll be talking about how cities and businesses can work together to address a range of challenges, including housing affordability, and some recent attempts by cities to introduce special taxes on their largest firms. But first on today's program, are young Americans buying homes, and if not, what is stopping them? According to a new report published by the Urban Institute, homeownership rates for millennials between the ages of 25 and 34 are substantially lower than they were for baby boomers and Gen Xers when they were about the same age. In the aftermath of the financial crisis, it was certainly tougher for a young family to get a mortgage. But at the same time, many young Americans have been choosing to rent instead of buy, in part because of the flexibility it offers and just differences in lifestyle. When are you getting married? When are you beginning to have children? When do the amenities that come along with homeownership suddenly begin to matter? With me to discuss the state of millennial homeownership and other topics, I am joined by Dr. Lori Goodman, Vice President at the Urban Institute, Co-Director of its Housing Finance Policy Center, and a returning guest to the Real Estate Hour. Lori, thanks again for joining me. Well, thank you very much for having me, Sam. I always like being on the show. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Broadly, how has the market for home ownership evolved over the last decade? And in particular, the the, the macro data uh, from the census seems to suggest that we're having a bit of a recovery in home ownership rates over the last couple of years. Is that what you see happening? Well, it's a little, it's a, it's a sort of little bit of a recovery. There's always some seasonal variations, um, but basically the home ownership rate dropped from around 69% to about 63.5%, and it's now up to about 64%. So it's stabilized to slightly rising, um, but it's not, it's not a huge rise. And um, a big reason um, for the, you know, you're not going to see a huge resurgence because the millennial population is. Um, is aging into home ownership very, very slowly. Right. I'm going to focus on that in a moment. Before I do, just to give our audience some context around these numbers, when we see home ownership rates decline from 69 to 63%, what's the order of magnitude there? We're, are, are we talking about millions of families? Oh, yes, definitely. There's, um, there's basically 120 million households in the United States. So... Um, yeah, you know, so basically a five percent drop from sixty nine to sixty four percent is 
is basically 6 million households. So this is a a very large number of people, 6 million households, an even larger number of individuals living in those households. Correct. And and again, another contextual point here, it's not simply the case that as younger families have formed or younger households have formed that they have been opting out of homeownership. A significant contributor to this is a large number of families losing their homes during the, the housing bust and crisis that followed. Yes, absolutely. So when you mentioned with uh, millennials that uh, homeownership is uh, recovering uh, perhaps only on the margins, uh, as compared to sort of the population in general, tell us a little bit about where we are with millennial homeownership. So so generally your homeownership rate rises um, as you get older. Um, But I think what's really interesting is to compare millennials, um, that is those that are 25 to 34, to where previous generations were at the same age. So, for example, baby boomers now have a homeownership rate of around 75%. However, when they were 25 to 34, they had a homeownership rate of 45%. Um, Gen X's at 25 to 34 had had a homeownership rate of around 45%. Millennials have a homeownership rate of 37%. So it's eight percentage points lower than than others at the same age. Right, I mean that's that's a very very big difference. We have a substantially yeah, lower, a substantially lower home ownership rate. You know, for uh, you know m- millennial households in the United States. Uh, I in reading your most recent research piece, you you've broken out for us. You know, really the key reasons for why it is that we see this. And I'm wondering if uh, you know to kick us off, you can talk a little bit about you know the actual you know nature of the household. You, you point out delayed marriage and, and delayed childbearing. Delayed marriage is just huge. Uh, is that probably the single most important factor? Um, so, um, you know, basically the um, marriage rate of young, around, uh, young, among young adults dropped from 52% in 1990 to, tw- to 39% in 2015. If the marriage rate in 2015 had been the same as it was in 1990, the millennial home ownership rate would be about five percentage points higher than it actually is. So that is the single most important contributor. Um, I think you know there are other um, important contributors, including the fact that um, this generation is more racially and ec- ethnically diverse than previous generations. Um, and the reality is that minorities in the United States have lower home ownership rates than their white counterparts, and that's also a very important contributor. Um, obviously, um, you know, today's generation is more educated, which helps, but they have more student loan debt, which hurts. Um, better educated millennials want to live in higher cost cities and higher cost areas within those cities. And there has been a small change in attitudes towards home ownership, but it is pretty small. Um, so but that's another two to three percent. That, that's a really interesting perspective for me. I work primarily on the multifamily rental side of this uh, story, and you know, we certainly see erosion in affordability there as rents have been increasing. Um, I think there's a very strong narrative amongst multifamily investors, developers, lenders about how a lot of what's driving this is changes in preferences and a desire for flexibility. Uh, but it's clear that there's much more going on over here. Uh, I wonder if you could come back for a moment to the point about racial diversity. I mean, yeah. well, 
for a lot of us, when we have conversations about millennials, it's almost as if it's the sort of homogenous group of recent college graduates. Uh, but that's not actually what we see when we look at the millennial population. Uh, what, what's it like? Yeah, so actually only about um, 60% of the millennial population is white as compared to about 80% of the boomers. Okay. And so it's um, so 40% is, um, you know, Hispanic or black or Asian or, you know, some combination. Um, so just, you know, huge difference in terms of, of um, racial and ethnic composition. And when you mentioned that, you know, when we do look at uh, different ethnic groups, that there are meaningful differences in uh, home ownership rates, is that primarily attributable to differences in, um, you know, preferences, or is it about, you know, sort of, you know, uh, sort of it's wealth income, levels? It's wealth. It's you know, it's a lot of it's a lot of factors, but the differences are huge. So, for example, the overall home ownership rate for whites is around seventy percent. Um, for Hispanics, it's sort of in um, in the high 40s, and for um, blacks, it's substantially it's substantially lower, like low 40s. So when we're thinking about sort of the long-term prospects for where home ownership rates might go, in as much as you know the next generational cohort that comes through will, in all likelihood, also be getting married later, having kids later, later uh, will be more racially more, diverse, um, racially and ethnically diverse, diverse. And I think what that does is um, sort of puts a drag on the home ownership rate. That is, I would expect, you know, 15 years from now, the home ownership rate is lower than it is now, not higher as a result of the of that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Dr. Lori Goodman, Vice President at the Urban Institute and Co-Director of its Housing Finance Policy Center. We're talking about patterns of home ownership amongst uh, younger American households and millennials in particular. So uh, one of the other things you mentioned, Lori, and I'm really curious about this because I think in the popular conversation, there's this sense that, oh my gosh, you know, younger Americans are graduating with substantially more debt than they ever have before. Um, We'll find sort of some very elite institutions where that's not the case, uh, because although tuition has been rising, uh, we've seen even greater increases in uh, need-based financial aid programs. But but this sense in the market that, you know, this student debt load is part of what's constraining our ability to become homeowners, how important a contributor is that in fact? Um, I think it, so. Let's actually divide the population into a couple of groups. So there is, first is the group that takes on a lot of student loan debt and doesn't actually finish college. For that group, it's absolutely devastating in terms of home ownership. And then you've got the group that finishes college, has substantially higher incomes as a result, and has a lot of student loan debt. For that group, it, it you know the student lo- if you didn't have the student loan debt, your home ownership rate would certainly be lower, but it's hard to actually figure out what the counterfactual is because the student loan debt allowed for a higher income. Um, so you know, so it's, it's hard to so it's hard to do an everything else equal analysis. Um, but prob- but you know even there student loan debt it certainly you know delays home ownership. Um, because your your student loan debt is there when you go when you want to get a mortgage, but um, your earning power debt kicks in over a number of years. All right. One of the other things you mentioned, and uh, when we think about sort of the dynamic in, in sort of your tenure choice between renting and home ownership, 
you know, in a static analysis, if rents are rising very quickly, it might make more sense to opt into home ownership. Um, but I think what you also describe is that um, as the rent to income ratio decreases, the likely sh- likelihood of, of home ownership uh, also moves. How, how does increasing rent uh, actually impact uh, families' capacities to become homeowners? Oh, it, it actually makes a big difference because basically it makes it that much harder to save for a down payment. If you're paying more of your income in rent, it's just harder to save for that down payment. You don't have the money to save. Um, and you know, one thing that, you know, that's really important and one thing that I think that is very, very concerned, I do find the lower home ownership rate among um, millennials concerning in the sense that home ownership has historically been the best way to build wealth. And fewer people are actually taking advantage or have the opportunity or have that opportunity now. Um, and, you know, I mean, home ownership is a good way to build wealth. It's also an inflation hedge because, um, as you point out, rents can continue to go out go up. Um, your mortgage payment is obviously fixed once you take out that fixed rate mortgage and you know exactly what it's going to be. Obviously, your maintenance costs on your home um, continue to rise with inflation, but you've locked a lot of your housing costs, which is one of the great benefits of home ownership. And again, fewer people are able to take advantage of that. Right. I think you know, to offer sort of a personal anecdote and tell me if sort of this is a good characterization. You know, when I bought my condo in New York City, uh, you know, I was just starting out in my career, and the payments seemed very, very large. You know, fast forward a number of years, uh, the 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 mortgage payment component of my overall housing costs it seems relatively small and, and quite manageable. The, the person living across the hall from me, who's been a renter over that entire time, has seen you know her mortgage, or in this case, rental cost, continue to increase year after year. I think that's a perfect that's a perfect example. Now, one of the things that may have been relevant for me and, and some other listeners, and you've pointed out as uh, an important factor in, in your most recent study, is uh, the ability of your parents to actually help you become homeowners. And it's in, in the abstract to see parental wealth and home ownership status. How does that factor into the likelihood that a younger American family or household you know, ultimately does uh, become a homeowning household? Um, so, I mean, obviously, you know, parental wealth is really important because your parents can help you out on a down payment. Um, and to the extent that more and more um, young people are more racially and ethnically diverse and those groups have lower home ownership rates, that makes it they don't have that source of parental wealth. Um, all, in addition to parental wealth, whether or not the parent is a homeowner in and of itself seems to have a positive impact on homeownership. That is, parents who are homeowners are apt to have kids who are homeowners, all things being equal, which is also very interesting because it, ba- it basically sort of, you know, as, if the parent is a homeowner, you know, that 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 home has provided oftentimes a sense of stability for the family, and that's something that the kids want to emulate. Right. So, is it would you is it possible to say that you know that's a perhaps sort of a behavioral element here that you know if you grew up in a household where your parents you know did own the home uh, that that is sort of influencing your thinking about uh, your preference for home ownership your sense of whether or not you know, home ownership is just sort of you know, one of the natural steps that you take uh, in your household's life cycle. Absolutely. 
Got it. Now, one of the things you mentioned that I think is also really interesting was about location choice and, and uh, you know, many millennials wanting to live in neighborhoods or parts of the city that uh, are, are more expensive, also wanting to live in cities that overall are more expensive. You know, how much of this is, gosh, I, I want walkability, I want proximity to restaurants and bars, and you know, I perhaps even want to be able to walk to work, certainly want proximity to good public transportation infrastructure. Um, and that's going to make sort of, you know, the, the set of choices that I prefer uh, more expensive. And so I have to be a renter. I can't be an owner in this particular location right now. Uh, is, is, is that capturing sort of what you report in the studies, that's location exactly, choice? That's exactly what we're capturing. The interesting thing about that shift, though, is it's only true among the highly educated millennials. So for highly educated millennials who are, you know, generally well paid, it generally it makes it you know, sort of the preference to live in that part of the city makes it much, much harder to um, afford a home. However, what's really interesting is that the gap between less and more educated millennials is actually widening. Right. And I see that in the report where you say, and I'm going to pull this right out of the abstract, less educated young adults are falling further behind in home ownership. So yes. it's part of our national conversation over the last several years. This issue of disparities in wealth has you know, certainly you know, informed a lot of the conversation. It's not just about you know, changes in our relative income levels. Uh, this is potentially exacerbated by what we see happening with home ownership. If home ownership is, in fact, this really important vehicle for, for you know, building wealth and building savings. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a very, it's a very troublesome trend because, um, you know, the difference in the home ownership rate by generation is just so much larger for that less educated population. Yeah. So when you described how, you know, the millennial cohort uh, of interest here has a home ownership rate of 37% versus, you know, at the same point in, in the household's life cycle for previous generations, something on the order of about 45 could you give us maybe not some specific numbers, but some order of magnitudes here? How big are these differences between you know less and more educated households and, and uh, households of different ethnic backgrounds? Yeah, um, so um, it's sort of around um, so the difference in the home ownership rate between um, less and more educated um, um, young adults used to be about three percentage points. It's now about ten percentage points. So just a huge, huge difference. That is a very large difference. And would you say that most of this has happened, you know, in the post-financial crisis period? Um, yeah. And was it the case that you know during the housing boom, for better or for worse, you know, using home ownership rates as a metric, uh, which I, I gather was you know, part of what proved to be challenging, but using home ownership as a metric, you know, were outcomes improving across the board? Uh, and where we've now, where we've seen this reversal, it's been more concentrated in one group than another. Um, I think, you know, it was, it was sort of characterized as sort of stable across the board and then just, you know, sort of fell apart after the financial crisis. Got it. Now, it's sort of this all raises the question of, you know, from are there policy prescriptions? Are there things we can do? Uh, and of course, you've articulated this you know, very well for us in uh, the report, which I'll just point listeners to the Urban Institute website, urban.org. Um, what's the most important thing that we can do to try and address the, the, the challenges around homeownership? Um, so I think there's, a, you know, a bunch of different things that you um, 
what that one can do. One is um, obviously increasing awareness that you don't need 20% down. You can get an FHA mortgage with 3.5% down. There's no you know policy prescription to increase awareness. There are also changes in the underwriting practices that can help a lot. So a lot of millennials, tend, you know, we've talked we talked a little bit about lifestyle choices earlier. A lot of millennials tend to use not to use credit cards. However, they make their rental payments every month. They make their cell phone payment every month. They make their cable payment every month. Um, rental payments, cell phone payments, and utility payments do not count toward their credit score. So um, they don't have much of a credit. So many of them don't have much of a credit history. Certainly, incorporating those things. Um, in um, the credit score would just be a huge, huge win. You know, another thing is many millennials have um, more um, variable income or, or a couple of different sources of income. Um, and unless your income is stable and predictable and you've had it for a while, it doesn't count toward um, qualifying for a mortgage. So if you're a teacher who does tutoring on the side or who teaches summer school every other year, um, or you drive an Uber on the side for um, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 hours a week, um, that's apt not to count for, toward your mortgage payments. Uh, um, that's not, apt not to count toward your debt-to-income ratio. And sort of looking at bank statements to, to, to determine consistency of cash flow might also be a very, very good addition to the um, underwriting toolkit. Because I think the underwriting toolkit looking just at credit scores and looking just at W-2s and then counting income that hasn't been stable enough um, ends up disadvantaging many millennials. Right. So, so part of this is just sort of a you know a general uh, education process around how it is that you build you know a good solid credit history. Uh, yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host Sam Chandon, and my guest is Dr. Lori Goodman, Vice President at the Urban Institute and Co-Director of its Housing Finance Policy Center. We're talking about you know some of the policy prescriptions for how it is that we can encourage uh, better outcomes for home ownership, particularly uh, amongst millennials. A practical question for you, Lori. If part of this is you know an education process around and you know, building that financial knowledge uh, amongst uh, the millennial cohort and others what's the best mechanism for this is you know in another world might this have been the consumer financial protection bureau is this a collective effort on the part of financial institutions where do we do it I think it's very hard. I mean, I think as millennials observe you know more of their friends buying they too they too will realize it's within reach got it. Uh, one of the other things you mentioned, and you know, fortunately, we're talking about now digital natives for the most part. Uh, one of your second points is uh, using technology to simplify the mortgage process. Uh, could you just elaborate on that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I mean, I think to, you know, to the extent that the mortgage process was um, more um, digital friendly, and I know that a lot of originators are trying to go this route, um, it makes it um, sort of less of a hassle, makes it more comfortable for people that are used to doing everything on the internet um, and certainly the ability to um, you know permission um, your lender to forward your tax returns per, um, to um, Fannie and Freddie to help you qualify for a mortgage the ability to um, for um, your lender to access your um, your bank accounts uh, the information in your bank accounts all that um, the, the that automation both produces cleaner applications and makes a big difference as well in terms of the ease of the process. 
Yeah. Uh, one of the things you mentioned, you know, that importance of building the credit history, in part a reflection of, you know, perhaps let's say how focused uh, the uh, the underwriting process can be um, in in really narrowing in on that on that number. Uh, one of the other, uh, you know, prescriptions that you raise is uh, to expand the credit assessment criteria. So where you described, you know, making that rent payment, making that telephone payment, if it's being done, you know, through a bank account, it's not counting towards your credit history. Right. You know, is there room there to uh, to actually sort of expand the way we think about how we assess credit? Oh, there is absolutely room. I mean, I think, you know, with rental payments, you're not going to get every landlord in the country to report rental payments. I mean, there are people who have suggested it, but it's just not going to happen. You have so many small landlords. Um, but I think, you know, sort of being able to access it through bank statements is the way to go. Yeah. And yes, you can analyze bank statements and you can look at um, expenses that are recurring at roughly the same time each month for roughly the same amount. Well, you know, when we've had guests on the program uh, where we've been looking at the really the supply side of the housing market, folks have regularly pointed out that we've we've had a real dearth of what we might think of as um, you know entry level homes being built over the course of the cycle, um, and you know various reasons for that. But I think it comes back to one of the points you're making over here, uh, which is also ease land use restrictions. Uh, so tell us a little bit about how that plays into the overall outcomes. Yeah, I mean, so you know, basically, there's just so few starter homes, um, as you point out, being built. There's much, much more demand for them, and the reason that you have such little. Um, construction is the, and I would argue that the amount of net new supply is a lot lower than the rate of new household formation. That is, new household formation is in the area of 1.1 to 1.2 million units a year. Each year, net after controlling for obsolescence, we're probably adding 800,000 or so units. So we're about 350,000 short of the rate of household formation. And a lot of that is at the very, very low end of the market. There's very little at the very, very low end of the market. And a lot of that reflects the fact that it's just so expensive to build because of building restri- because of land use restrictions. And relaxing those would make a big difference. But that's actually a very difficult problem to tackle because it's a local issue. The localities control their own land use restrictions. Washington can't wave a magic wand and say, oh, no more land use restrictions. Um, everything is by right from here from here forward, right? And so, you know, g- given that it is sort of a, a very local issue, uh, are, are there examples of cities uh, or municipalities where you know, we really see this being done in a way that is encouraging, you know? housing supply at the lower end of the market, you know, is sort of, you know, easing some of the constraints that young families face? I can't think of any. I mean, there's just, there's no markets where it's, where you're seeing a lot of low end construction at the low end. Yeah. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about in the few minutes we have left uh, is about some alternatives to that single-family home. Uh, in terms of you know, this construction side of the market, in light of the affordability issues, both in terms of what's happening with rents um, and single-family homes, certainly on the multifamily side, we've been you know, very, very focused on building class A, luxury, high-end to the sort of you know, stylized millennial who's graduated from an MBA program. And that's not really meeting the, the, the needs of, of you know, the, the broader market. Uh, what are some of the uh, trends that you see or s- some of the opportunities in terms of the types of housing? So I think one, the thing that I'm the most optimistic about is manufactured housing. Um, between, between 1977, when um, 
HUD adopt, adopted the code for manufactured housing, which basically specified that the units had to meet certain criteria, which has been tightened several times since. And um, about 1995, we shipped about 240,000 manufactured homes a year. And if Last I can interrupt you for one second, could you just clarify for the audience, what do you mean by manufactured housing? Um, manufactured housing is housing that's built to the HUD code. And manufactured housing right now, you know, isn't the, uh, a lot of times looks very little different than site-built housing. I mean, it's gotten, it's very, it's very high quality. It's built to federal code. Um, it's not the rundown trailers that you think of as, um, th- that a lot of people think of. I mean, it's, it's, re- it's, re- it's high quality housing. Um, And there's relatively little of it being shipped, about 93,000 units per year in in 2017 versus 240,000 from 1977 to 1995. Um, And I think, you know, there are are changes you can make in terms of the financing of those units that would make a big difference in terms of – um, increasing the number of them that are shipped. Obviously, the zoning restrictions, land use restrictions, are also an issue there, because you don't necessarily. You, a lot of um, areas actually don't allow uh, manufactured housing or require manufactured housing to conform to more stringent standards than ordinary single-family housing. And, and is, is how much of that is sort of a, a lack of sort of understanding or education on the part of both? You know the the local jurisdiction, uh, the the prospective home buyer, or this idea that we might have in our head of what manufactured housing is, versus the high quality product that you're describing. That I think for a lot of people may be a great fit. I think a, that is a lot of it. I think people, a lot of people, have misconceptions as to what manufactured housing is. Got it. Well, Lori, I have to thank you so much for coming back to the program. Well, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. And if folks are interested in reading more about uh, Lori's research in these areas and others, I direct you to the urban.org uh, website uh, for the Urban Institute be able to read more, including the research report that we've been discussing today. Uh, that was Lori Goodman, Vice President at the Urban Institute and Co-Director of its Housing Finance Policy Center. We are going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, I'll be joined by Professor Stephen Pedigo, Director of the Urban Lab at NYU's Schack Institute. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by Wharton. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 